minute ago, and uh, I did want to say before I got into the message this morning, uh, Ken's been taking us through Sermon on the Mount, gosh, probably for, a, I don't know, maybe a couple of years or so. And if you read through the Bible, a lot of people think the Gospels are the easy place to hang out, and the truth is they're really some of the most difficult places in all the Scripture to know what God means us to take away. And Kent has just done an outstanding job in this series. Uh, I think uh, some of our most uh, challenging discussions and points of application in our home group as we review the teaching from the previous night uh, or previous Sunday has been on Kent's messages. So I commend those to you and thank Kent again for his diligence in that. You know, we're in week three of our building here. Does it almost seem normal, like you're already here and it's like no big deal? It does not quite strike me that way yet. You know, this building was given to us a little over a year ago. In fact, just over a year ago. And so I look back and I think last summer there were groups of women that came through the building and they dusted and they cleaned and they pitched and they organized. And then a big group of guys followed them. And this is on multiple occasions and was in the basement and we were tearing out damaged walls and floors and did that again. The gals came back, pitched some more, cleaned some more. We've had contractors come in a little bit, some painting, some other things. Groups of gals have redone the women's bathroom, the nursery. You get the picture, et cetera, et cetera, painting one project after another. It really has been a group effort. Uh, it's been a tremendous group effort on the church's part. So with that, that's where we've come from. Imagine this, if we go back through that year, the former year that we've just come through, and, and all this effort on behalf of the church and the group for the common good, right? Imagine in the midst of that, if we found out that some in our midst who are pitching in and working away on the church building were being called to account by others in our group for some past infraction, or maybe that they had made a commitment at one point in the past to help them at their house, at that other person's house, and came up to them and said, I keep fading out, guys. Should I use this other mic? I'd be glad to. What do you think? We'll try this for a while. Okay. Um, if they said, we found out that while we're working hard and we're being diligent, and then we find out some in our midst are essentially abusing others in our midst, at this time, critical time, when we really need everybody's efforts in this focused arena for the common good, but some of us are saying to others, hey, we want what you promised us and we want it now. What effect do you think that would have on morale? Both to the people who were being called to account, come and do what you said you'd do right now, or to the rest of the group. Because at one moment you'd have this sense that we're all in this together. You know, and we're shoulder to shoulder and we're working together and then you'd feel like all of a sudden, well, I guess we're not. Because while some of us are diligent and working hard, other of us are just taking advantage of people in the situation. What a downer that would be, right? What a killer. What a morale killer instead of a morale booster. There may be no more discouraging challenge in continuing to push ahead in the works God calls us to than the challenges that come from within our own group we are in week four of a series through nehemiah and this is not a verse by verse chapter by chapter study but rather we've said what we want to do is simply work through nehemiah's experience of the challenges he faced 
in the call God had on his life to rebuild the walls in Jerusalem. And so he faced six specific challenges. We've looked at a couple of those. We'll look at another one this morning. But most of those, the ones we've talked about already initially, they were externally focused. So there are enemies, there's adversaries, there's opposition outside the walls of Jerusalem that they have to go toe-to-toe with. So they're shoulder-to-shoulder, they're facing outward to face their common foe. But now, in the study this morning, we see that they aren't free simply to stand shoulder-to-shoulder and face the outward opposition because they have dissension, they have opposition within their own ranks. And you know, you talk about a discouraging element. If I think we're all in it together, there's a sense of camaraderie. If I find out that we're melting from within, I'm wondering what is left? Where's this thing really going? Let me bring you up to speed too, just a little bit. Recap the previous week so you have a sense of where we are and where we're going. Nehemiah was a really godly guy. And if you've got your Bible, if you, if you hold just the Old Testament between your hands and open your Bible, he's right in the middle between Ezra and Esther. And he lived, his story takes place in the middle of the 5th century B.C. It starts about 445 B.C. This is during the Persian Empire. If you remember, the Jews had been taken captive to Babylon. 586 B.C., Jerusalem fell, had been destroyed, it was burned. So the Persians displaced the Babylonians, and King Artaxerxes is the most powerful king, the most powerful man on all the earth. He is the king of all earthly kings. And Nehemiah is his cupbearer. So Nehemiah is in the court of the king of earthly kings. He's before the man with the most power on all the earth. He has incredible prestige. He lives in the palace, the court's pleasure if he wanted it, certainly comfort. But when he hears from folks that had been to Jerusalem, they'd gone back. And this is 445 B.C. This is the middle of the uh, 5th century. If you went back earlier, 150 years earlier, the city had been burned. But under King Cyrus, when he displaced the Babylonians, an initial group had gone back. They'd started rebuilding the temple. Twelve years earlier, Ezra and a group had gone back. They're working in the city. But the city is a desolate, terribly challenging place. I mean, we were really glad to get this building right, but there was work to do. So we're glad, we're thrilled we're coming in, but there's work to do. Well, the Jews, they were thrilled to be going back to Jerusalem on one hand, But guys, they got there and it's like, where do we start? Remember, it had been 150 years earlier that the walls had been torn down. They'd been burned. They'd been charred. There was nothing there to go back to. It was all work. So incredible sense of privilege and promise. God keeping his promise on one hand, but incredible sense of challenge and difficulty as well. So that's what Nehemiah up for. So he heard this is what's going on. He says, I have a heart to go back and help here, Lord. In fact, when you read the earlier chapters, It's so cool because Nehemiah has comfort. He has the things that most of us want. But when he hears what's going on with his brothers and sisters in the faith, in the covenant, he says, God, I want to be part of going back and helping them. And I want to specifically rebuild the wall of Jerusalem so that the city of God on earth reflects again God's glory so that God's name is honored. God, I want to leave the palace, the courts, and my personal comfort, and I want to go join my Jewish brothers to honor your name, to bring honor to your name among the Gentiles by rebuilding on earth the city of God. That was Nehemiah's heart. This is an incredibly, incredibly godly guy. So, chapter 5, Nehemiah, the work of God, faces a challenge 
that is not like the ones we've already read about. And it's a little different than the ones that he'll face early or later. The challenge to restore the wall in the city aren't from without, they're from within. The challenges to continuing God's work isn't opposed by foes, but by friends. So if you've got your Bible, you can open that up. I'm going to read from the New American Standard. If you have a study sheet, the text is on there. So this is Nehemiah 5. We'll take this, uh, we're going to go through the whole chapter. We'll do, through, do so piecemeal uh, at three separate points. Here, verses 1 through 5. Now there was a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers, for there were those who said, We, our sons and our daughters, are many. Therefore let us get grain that we may eat and live. There were others who said, We are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses that we might get grain because of the famine. Also there were those who said, We have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. Now our flesh is like the flesh of our brothers, our children like their children. Yet behold, we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves, and some of our daughters are forced into bondage already. We are helpless because our fields and vineyards belong to others. So guys, this is a huge, huge shift from the end of chapter 4. Remember at the end of chapter 4? Everybody's got their sword in one hand and their trowel in the other. And everybody's work on the wall. And you remember chapter 3, we were given this hit list of the individuals and the families who are working together around to rebuild the wall and the gates. And suddenly chapter 5 opens and you've got this cry from the people against their fellow brothers. It's interesting too, it says the people, and then it says their wives. So it wasn't just the heads of the household, the guys, the women are letting them know we've got a problem. And this is the problem. There's three groups mentioned here. If you look at the first group in verse 2, so put yourself in their position. This is a cash society. We know there's a famine going on. And this first group, they don't have assets to leverage. They, they work, they get paid, and they buy their food. Well, they've been working on the wall. And this, this is work with no pay. And so they say, we have big families and we're going to feed our families and we have no food and we have no cash. We've been working on the wall for the benefit of all, for the glory of God. We have no money left to feed ourselves. We can't keep doing this. And the wives, the mothers who are trying to put food on the table are no doubt telling their husbands, guys, there's nothing left to feed us. So this is the first group. We would call them day laborers, no real assets, just what they work for. They're out of money and they're out of food. You look at the second group in verse 3, they have material resources that they can borrow against, but at this point, they're out of food as well. We are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, our houses that we might get grain because of the famine. Now, two things here. This group is saying we are going into debt. We are taking on, let's put it this way, credit card debt so we can work on the wall we have we're out of cash all we've got are our land our vineyards and our houses and we're borrowing against them to buy food and food is high in this setting food is high because there's a famine do we ever entertain the notion that if we do god's will it'll be easy we do don't we you do not see that here they're doing God's will, aren't they? Because they're back in the land of promise. God made it clear. 
You're going to be captives, but I'll bring you back. They're back. They're doing God's will, and there's still a famine in the land. Land is cheap because people are selling their land. They're borrowing against their land. But food is high because there's a famine. So the second group says, we are going into debt. We're taking on personal debt in order to buy food at a high price to keep working on the wall. They're crying out. And the third group, verse 4, they have land and resources also, but no ready cash. And, and this may be the sort of the most pathetic group. Uh, l- look at that back in verse 5. When they say, our, the flesh of our brothers, uh, excuse me, our flesh is like the flesh of our brothers, our children like their children. These guys are saying, look, we've lent against our land and our vineyards and our houses. And that wasn't enough. So now we have sold our own children into bondage to our fellow Jews. We've essentially made indentured servants of our own children. So when they're saying our children, they're basically saying they're not our kids anymore. They don't even live in our household. We've lost our lands. We've lost our vineyards and our houses. We've even lost our own children. And that's the price they were paying to work on the wall. So they're crying out, basically, we can't keep doing this. So, this sounds desperate. And that would be bad enough, right? But then the real kicker is because the scenario that they're describing is because the wealthy Jewish brethren in their midst are taking unfair advantage of these guys who are working for the sake of all. So there are wealthy Jews. There are rulers of the people in their midst who are lending money at interest. And then they're seizing the houses, the vineyards, and the land when these guys haven't been able to make their payments. They're not only not subsidizing the cost of the wall by providing food to all, but they're taking unfair advantage of these people in the worst situation they've probably ever faced in their life. So if these guys were instead contributing to the common good, none of this would have been going on. They had the ability to help, but they're not. And instead, they're taking unfair advantage. So, in the midst of the sacred work of bringing honor to God's name by rebuilding His city, the next opposition Nehemiah faces against the work of God were the very people he was working with. It's not the enemy outside the gates. It's the opposition from within. The enemy without can be withstood but what do we do about the opposition within and what do we do when the those opposing God's work are in fact God's people this is like I can withstand a lot but this is the most difficult thing to withstand so that's the scenario of what's going on they're back in the land of promise God is keeping his word they're really glad for that on one hand but it is very very difficult on the other the walls are still down It's been charred, it's been burned, food is high, land is cheap, and we've spent all our resources. This is the scenario, and so this is going to be Nehemiah's response. So, that's what's going on. What does Nehemiah think about this? How does he respond? Verse 6, he says, I was ticked. That's Mike's translation. I was very angry when I had heard their outcry in these words. And follow the progression here. I was angry. He was angry appropriately so. We'll, we'll discuss some of this in a minute. He is ticked about the right things for the right reasons. 
Verse 7, I consulted with myself. You know, you'll never regret when you find yourself angry. Some people say, I count to ten. You know, count to ten before you respond. That's really shrewd. That's really prudent. That we don't simply respond immediately out of our anger. Nehemiah did not. He's angry about the right thing for the right reason. But it says, verse 7, I consulted with myself. I thought it over. I examined what was going on. I let my head cool down, my heart cool down to say, what are the issues? What needs to take place? And then I contended with the nobles and the rulers, the folks who are taking unfair advantage, and said to them, you are exacting usury. You're charging Jewish brothers interest. Each from his brother. Therefore, I held a great assembly against them. I called them together. And I said to them, we, according to our ability, have redeemed our Jewish brothers who were sold to the nations. So understand, Nehemiah says, when I and my entourage came back from Persia, we took our resources and we redeemed Jewish people who had sold themselves into servitude to the Gentiles. Just like this group. So we, out of our pocket, we've redeemed these brothers back into our fold. He says, now would you even sell your brothers that, there may be, that they may be sold to us? We've come in to redeem Jews back. You are creating Jewish servitude. What are you doing? We're working on one side of the sand pile and you're working on the other against us. They were silent. They could not find a word to say. Verse 9, again I said, the thing which you are doing is not good. Should you not walk in the fear of our God because of the reproach of the nations and our enemies? He says clearly what you're doing does not reflect an appropriate fear and reverence for God and for God's name among the Gentiles in which you live. Likewise, I, my brothers and my servants, are lending them money and grain. Please let us leave off this usury. Let me just quickly qualify here. If you read commentators on this verse, verse 10, most of them will say that Nehemiah is admitting that he is part of the problem. And these guys are smarter than I am and they know languages better than I am, but I think they're, re I think they're getting the meaning entirely backwards. Nehemiah is saying, we, I and my group, we are lending interest-free loans to those who need it. We're not, buying, we're not taking any unfair advantage. We're buying people out of servitude and we're lending money freely with no thought. There's not collateral issues. There's not an interest issue. We're doing what we can financially to help them out. He says, let us leave off this usury of this charging of interest, this seizure of assets. Verse 11, please give back to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive groves and their houses, also the hundredth part of the money and of the grain, the new wine and the oil that you are extracting from them. Give them back their assets and give them back at least a portion of the interest you've already taken. Verse 12, they said, we will give it back and will require nothing from them. We will do exactly as you say. So I called the priests and took an oath from them that they would do according to this promise. Verse 13, I shook out the front of my garment and said, Thus may God shake out every man from his house and from his possessions who does not fulfill the promise. Even thus may he be shaken out and emptied. And the, all the assembly said, Amen. So he has this visual help for them. They had dispossessed their Jewish brothers from their houses and their lands. And he says, may God do that to you if you don't keep this promise. 
And last, he closes with, they praised the Lord, the people did according to this promise. So, Nehemiah's response, you got this terrible situation, really this, this debilitating, depressing, discouraging situation going on in the midst of the work. Nehemiah responds, he's angry. Verse 7, you're charging interest. It's against the law. It's unconscionable in this setting anyway. Verse 9, you're not living in the fear of God. Verse 11, give back what you've taken. And verse 12 and 13, take an oath. Uh, go to um, the third point on your study sheet, if you would, for a moment. <clears throat> Some of us are bored when we read through the law, the, the, the Torah, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible because some, some of it is uh, trying, isn't it? It's a little dry. It's hard to get through. All of these verses, though, except the last one, Proverbs, are from the law. They're from uh, Exodus, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy. One of the things you'll find when you read through the law, it has as much to say about ethics and public morality as it does the worship of God. That God was intimately concerned with the way His people treated each other. And you see that reflected time and time and time again in the law. Also, if you read through the Old Testament prophets, you'll see that the two key things God harangues His people over are idolatry, meaning they're replacing God with false gods. They're not loving the Lord their God with all their heart. And the second thing He harangues them over is the way they treat each other. And that makes sense, doesn't it? So Jesus in the Gospel says the two key commandments are what? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. And what you see throughout the Old Testament is God's emphasis on putting Him and His things first, worshiping God, loving God, and then taking care of each other, living with an understanding way with those around us, loving our neighbor as ourself. I say all that to say, look at these verses with me. We're just going to skim through these, but I just want you to have a sense of what God was calling the Jewish nation back to. Now remember... They have been redeemed out of captivity. God's brought them back out of Babylon and Persia to put them back in the land of promise. This is a renewal of the covenant. God's covenant people back in the land of promise. And these are some of the things that God had told His people about the way they treated each other. So, these are just examples, by the way, and we could multiply these. Exodus 22:25. If you lend money to My people... To the poor among you, you are not to act as a creditor to him. You shall not charge him interest. Jews were encouraged to make loans to fellow Jews in dire straits as needed, but without interest. It was against the law and against the covenant for one Jew to charge another Jew interest on a loan. So what you see going on here in Nehemiah's days, absolutely, unequivocally, against the law of God, against the covenant God has renewed and restored with His people. Leviticus 25.35 In case a countryman of yours becomes poor and his means with regard to you falter, he cannot repay what he's borrowed. That's Nehemiah's situation again. What were they supposed to do? You are to sustain him. You're to take care of him anyway. He can't repay the loan and you're supposed to take care of him anyway. Like a stranger or a sojourner that he may live with you, take him in as your own family. Do not take usurious interest from him, but revere your God. That's exactly what Nehemiah said. That if you don't take care of your Jewish brothers, you are not living in the fear of God. You're not revering God 
and living in a way that reflects his values. He wants you to take care of each other. That your countrymen may live with you, you shall not give him your silver at interest nor your food for grain. Deuteronomy 23.19 Don't charge interest. Deuteronomy 15.7 If there is a poor man with you, one of your brothers in any part of your towns in your land which the Lord your God has given you, you shall not harden your heart nor close your hand from your poor brother, but you shall freely open your hand to him and shall generously lend him sufficient for his need in whatever he lacks. Is that cool? God was really calling the Jewish nation. And remember, they're all related by blood, aren't they? I mean, these guys are all related by the patriarchs. They're all the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They're all literally brothers just in an extended family. And so God said, I'm calling you to treat each other like your family. Imagine that. Remember, one of the definitions of home is home is the place that where you go, they have to let you in. That's this. So my, bar, my brother has borrowed money from me and he's not repaying me. And he says, hey, I'm still in desperate straits. And God says, take your brother in and take care of him. Now, guys, as always, there are fine points of application in all of this, aren't there? We're not getting into all the ways we don't enable people and not working and being responsible and being faithful. That's not what we're talking about. These were times of desperate straits, difficult times. And when you see your family members in those straits, you take them in, you provide for them, you treat them like they're your brothers as they in truth are. And last, Proverbs 19, 17, one who is gracious to a poor man lends to the Lord, the Lord will repay him for his good deed. Isn't that great? So what is, that puts the context, think of this just for a minute. When you read Matthew 25, and Jesus says, when you did it to one of the least of them, you did it to me. That's exactly the same thing here, isn't it? You've lent to the poor man. God says you've actually lent that to me. You've treated the poor man. That's the treatment you've treated me with. So that's the ethos. That's the kind of values that the Jews were called to display towards each other, which they absolutely were not in this situation. So the wealthy and the rulers were breaking both the spirit and the letter of the covenant at the time that God was restoring his people to the land. So, you know, when this comes up in our own day, what do we do? We should do what Nehemiah did, right? Reprove the offenders. That's the loving thing to do. And call each one back to covenant faithfulness. By the way, so you don't miss it, there at the end, did you see the offenders gave praise to God? When Nehemiah called them up short for what they were doing, and they repented, and they took that oath, it says they praised God. Because now their conscience is clear. And the cloud between them and God is removed. And their response wasn't, they weren't embittered, they weren't hardened. They were appropriately chased. And the fruit from their lips is they're praising God again because they're doing the right thing. And when we call each other or when we personally repent and turn around and do the right thing, praise, our heart is lightened. We can now praise and interact with God again as we as he intends. Listen to this out of Galatians 5. Thinking of us today and just what this looks like. You know, Paul was talking about uh, to Christians, we're not under the law anymore. We're not under that covenant that we just read verses from. Right? Remember, the, the law said, do these things and live. But Paul says, no. Uh, live through faith and then do these things. And he's clarifying for the Galatians 
you live under God's grace, but that doesn't remove you from the responsibility to love others as yourself. So he says in Galatians 5, you were called to freedom, brothers. Don't turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh. We might say take unfair advantage of others. But through love, serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word in the statement, love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, take care that you are not consumed by one another. If you find yourself in the midst of a self-seeking church or group, what do you think is going to happen to that group? It's going to implode. It's going to self-destruct. And that's exactly what Paul says here. So, through love, serve one another. That's the call. You remember in contrast to this, think for just a second. In the early chapters of the book of Acts, the church is new. And think of this. So the Spirit of God has come down at Pentecost. The Spirit of Jesus now inhabits His people. And they find themselves in a crisis not too unlike Nehemiah's because there's all these people without cash, ready cash, to provide for their own food and lodging. And what did the early church do? They willingly, they didn't lend money, they willingly sold their assets. And they gave their money to the apostles to be distributed among the needy in their midst. Exactly the opposite of you see going on here. So God says, love me and love my people. The Spirit of God has come down in the church and that's exactly what you see the early church doing. Doing exactly what the Jewish should have been doing here for each other. In fact, if you look at most of the passage in, in the epistles, if you go to do a study on giving in the New Testament and you go to the epistles, all of the long passages and most of the passages in the New Testament on giving have to do with Gentile believers raising funds to help Jewish believers in Judea. That the Gentile believers, now with God's Spirit in them, were taking up funds to be sent to Judea and Jerusalem to provide for their Jewish brothers who were without means because of persecution. It's exactly the same thing. Lion and Lamb, this church has a rich tradition, which I'm thrilled about. I think it's frankly, we, we talk about ethos statements each week when we do announcements to say we really value these things. But from the early days of the church, and I've said this before, it was the care for each other that kept this church going years ago. And if, if you wouldn't necessarily know this, but as I look back on the, the long almost 20 years of the life of the church, um, this church has had a, a consistent commitment. People provide meals for other families when they have babies and when there's deaths and difficulties. And the church has paid for rent and mortgage and hearing aids and food and the list goes medical bills on and on and on through the years as we have had ability to do so and known there were needs. And should this church lose that spirit, that kind of care for each other, I can tell you that our days are numbered. Forget the building or forget the walls of Jerusalem because we will implode. We will fall apart from the inside out because we've missed God's heart. Love God. Love each other. So, look at your text or your study sheet at verse 14. And this is, this is a black and white. This is a point and counterpoint. So we know what the rulers have been doing. The, the people with wealth in Jerusalem, we know what they're doing. They're abusing their brothers. Now from verse 14 on, Nehemiah 
We're meant to see him in contrast to that other group. So look at what we read and learn about Nehemiah. He says, verse 14, moreover, from the day that I was appointed to be their governor, this is the first time, by the way, Nehemiah's even bothered to tell us he's the governor. He's not just a guy on assignment from the king. He is the governor of the area around Jerusalem and the city itself. From the 20th year, this is the years of Artaxerxes' reign, to the 32nd year of King Artaxerxes, 12 years, neither I nor my kinsmen have eaten the governor's food. The former governors who were before me laid burdens on the people and took from them bread and wine besides 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants domineered the people. But I did not do so because of the fear of God. So he comes in and says, for 12 years I've served as the governor. And friends, in most situations, it would have been absolutely appropriate, just as the Jewish kings had done, for Nehemiah to have been fed and paid for and supported by the people of the land. That's the way governors were taken care of, right? We pay taxes to support our government officials, right? Same thing. Only he says, because of the conditions in the land, I didn't make use of any of those things that I could have. I didn't take anything. I I imposed no tax on the people and I took no food from the people for myself. He said, verse 16, I also applied myself to the work on the wall. Now think about this for a minute. Nehemiah is the most powerful, important man in Jerusalem. He's the ruler. So, the most important person in their midst has taken the lowest position. Does this sound familiar? The most important, highest ranking person in their midst has now taken the position of the lowliest in their group by working on the wall. Is this cool? So he's leading by example, isn't he? He's not just telling the Jews what they should do. He's showing them what to do. And he's side by side with them in the Word. It's not just do what I say, it's do what I do. So he is demonstrating through his own life an example, I'm in this with you. I'm not dictating to you from on high in this very difficult, hard labor you guys are doing. I'm in the pit, I'm on the wall, I'm in the muck and the mire, right there with you. He also says we did not buy any land. Now what he is inferring in this is, We didn't come in and take advantage of the fire sale prices on land in Jerusalem because all these people needed to sell them to get money for food. We didn't buy any land, not because we don't believe in this place. We weren't taking unfair advantage of others. And he says, all my servants were gathered there for the work. I worked and my servants worked. Moreover, verse 17, it gets better, there were at my table 150 Jews and officials besides those who came to us from the nations that were around us. He's the governor. He's bringing people in. People are coming and going all the time. They're eating at his table. Verse 18, Now that which was prepared for each day. So he's not raising support for his table out of his own pocket and his own means. This is what Nehemiah is providing each day. One ox, six sheep, birds, He says, once in ten days, all sorts of wine in abundance. Yet for all this, I did not demand the governor's food allowance because the servitude was heavy on this people. 
I could have, I didn't, because they couldn't afford it. And I could. And so I did what I could afford to do. He closes with a verse that we'll look at in future weeks. Remember me, O my God, for good, according to all that I have done for this people. So, real briefly, Nehemiah and his crew had been ransoming Jews back out of servitude. He is essentially doing everything within his power to bless and to love through action his fellow Jews. He's doing everything he can. He's buying people out of servitude. He's reproving those who are putting Jews into servitude. He's taking no tax. He's taking no food. He's providing for himself, his household, and all the people who come to Jerusalem all on his own dime. He's doing everything he can to help. Now, I want to wind down. I've got just a few minutes. and um, You know, if you're not careful when you go through the Bible, you end up with morality tales do this and and live like this and be good and be religious and keep keep the laws keep the rules and that's not what we want is it we want to be transformed from the inside out and when we read our bibles whatever part we're in uh, we are meant to see god and christ specifically okay so you know in sunday school the joke is the answer in sunday school is jesus and we say yes kids what's the answer jesus you know, like it's the mantra. Whatever the question is, Jesus is the answer. Well, there's actually a point of truth in there, isn't there? So from Genesis 1-1 through the last verse of Revelation 22, if we don't see Christ in the passages, big picture, we're missing something. We're missing something. And if we don't see Christ in Nehemiah, we're missing big time what God means us to see. So you got in this chapter, you've got the contrast between the self-seeking rulers and Nehemiah. One is an abusive group taking unfair advantage. Nehemiah comes in. He looks like a savior to me. He comes in, identifies with the poor. He didn't have to. So some of you have already seen some of these points, I'm sure. But let me just run and see this in your mind. Not on your study sheet because there wasn't room. But listen, close your eyes if you want. You can see this in your mind's eye. But listen, my list is not exhaustive, by the way, Okay. This is not exhaustive, but listen to these parallels. Nehemiah was in the royal courts at the side of the earthly king of kings. Jesus, God the Son, pre-incarnate existence, was in the courts of heaven before his heavenly Father, the king over all kings. Nehemiah left his royal setting to go to a place still languishing under judgment and death. Jesus left the courts of heaven to come to a sin-cursed earth to save those under the righteous judgment of the Father. Nehemiah was on a mission from the high king carrying his letters of introduction and authority. We saw that earlier. Jesus was on God's mission and came with the credentials of God's Messiah. You can compare Matthew 11 with Isaiah 35 and also Matthew 3, Jesus' uh, baptism. The Father approves and says, this is my son. This is the one on mission from me. Nehemiah identified with the downtrodden and the lowly. He's in the pits working with them. Jesus humbled Himself to become one of us, Philippians 2. Nehemiah brought together the people of God around Himself and His plan for God's glory in Jerusalem. Jesus calls God's people to Himself, John 12.32, and to God's plan, Matthew 28. Nehemiah successfully defeated the enemies of God. Jesus defeated all powers in His death and resurrection, Colossians 2.15. Nehemiah didn't take support from his subjects, but served them and provided for himself and his household out of his own wealth in contrast to all the former governors 
Jesus came not to take, but to give gifts to men, Ephesians 4.8. In contrast to all who came before Him, He was the Good Shepherd who would give His life for many. If you've never done so, you need to read Ezekiel 34 and then read John 10. There's an intentional contrast between the prior Jewish leaders and Jesus' role as Good Shepherd. Nehemiah's work restored honor to God's name. Jesus did all things for the glory of His Father, John 17.1. Nehemiah was building the city of God on earth. Jesus is building the heavenly city, the city of God, the new Jerusalem. Nehemiah left Jerusalem and went back to the high king in Persia only to return to Jerusalem again. Jesus accomplished His great work of redemption on earth, returned to His Father's side where He is today, but has promised to return. In fact, isn't it interesting? To the Mount of Olives, the city of Jerusalem, right where Nehemiah was working, you can see that in both Zechariah 14 and Acts 1.11. And we can multiply this. This is, it's not accidental. Nehemiah, we're supposed to see through the lens of Nehemiah who he is, what he's like, what he did. We're supposed to see God's Messiah. We're supposed to see Christ and what he's done for us. So Nehemiah is this outstanding individual. But you and I need a Savior bigger than Nehemiah. And we need an example better than Nehemiah's. And so this book and this person and his work, it's, it's another lens by which we see God and God's Messiah, and all that Jesus has done for us. So my takeaways as I close are twofold this morning. One is, if we're to be a part of God's building program today, we must be about building up and blessing and providing for our brothers and sisters in Christ. Friends, that's one of the things of Team Haiti. There's a lot of Christians in Haiti. They just don't have what we have. They don't have our history. They don't have our resources. They're needy brothers and sisters in Christ, as well as folks who have not yet either heard the gospel or responded to the gospel. This is an appropriate work. We saw this also in our spring series called The Church's Family, that the least meaningful act of love and service Christians are called to be committed to for each other is simply physical necessities. Don't say be warm and be filled. John says love in deed and in truth. If we are in the church or to complete the works of faith God calls us to corporately, we will do so together with and for each other. And then second, we follow one greater than Nehemiah. And so today, again, we say again, God's building program today on the earth is the church. When we share the gospel with others, that's part of building the church. When we encourage and exhort each other, that's part of building the church. When we call each other to repentance, as Nehemiah did. That's part of building the church. Are we part of God's building program? Are we both facing the external opposition to God's plans, which I have no doubt will heat up in days to come, and are we doing so in a way that's equally supportive of each other? Friends, it's not just important that we get to the end, that we achieve our goal. It's equally important that we bring others with us in achieving their goals and God's goals for us corporately as well. Father, thanks for a lovely book and a lovely, incredible example of your son Jesus in the person of Nehemiah. Lord, would you help us to embody the spirit of Christ that we see in him, this self-sacrificing, this willingness to lay it all on the line so that you would be glorified and others would be blessed in the doing. And Lord, we, we cast ourselves on your care. We ask you to build us from the inside out. Make us, Lord, more and more fully part of your building program on this earth in our time. In Jesus' name, amen.